Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community and we're dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And we're dedicated to being in right relationship with one another, with our community and with the planet. Whoever you are, whatever body you live in, whoever you love, you're welcome here. We come from a long history of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. So one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to the people around us and welcoming them here. Please say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. At this hour, in small towns and big cities, in single rooms and ornate sanctuaries, Many of our sibling Unitarian Universalist congregations are also lighting a flaming chalice. As we light our chalice today, let us remember that we are part of a great community of faith. May this dancing flame inspire us to fill our lives with Unitarian Universalist ideals of love, justice, and truth. Our call to worship this morning is a poem from poet Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver was a Pulitzer Prize winner and National Book Award winner, white American poet who died only about this time last year. She was and may still be America's best-selling poet and the possessor of a great spirit, soul, and ability to see and communicate the beauty and aliveness of her world, and of course, her heart. When it's over, she said, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. Her poem this morning, Why I Wake Early. Hello, sun in my face. Hello, you who made the morning and spread it over the fields and into the faces of the tulips and the nodding morning morning glories and into the windows of even the miserable and the crotchety best preacher ever was. Dear star, that just happens to be where you are in the universe, to keep us from ever darkness, to ease up, ease us with warm touching, to hold us in the great hands of light, Good morning, good morning, good morning. Watch now how I start the day in happiness, in kindness. This congregation has a mission that guides our decisions as we move into the future. We write it on the wall. We say it every Sunday together. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. For our moment for beloved community today, I want to call your attention to a woman named, a white woman named Peggy McIntosh, who who, um, has a a paper that she wrote um, that talks about privileges. She talks about um, white privilege. She talks about male privilege. She talks about able-bodied privilege, youth privilege, age privilege. There are all kinds of privileges that we carry, all of us different ones, 
And when she's talking to an audience about white privilege, she says, those of you who identify as white, knowing how our culture treats people of color, who among you would like to change places? And the whole audience just kind of stares at her. And she says, right, okay, now don't ever tell me that you think we're past it or you think our culture doesn't do that anymore, or that we have a black president, so it's over, so we all, everything's okay. She said, you know it, you see it, you just don't have to pay attention to it, but I'd like you to. Peggy McIntosh um, is an interesting name to Google, and you can see her talk. Our contemplative reading this morning is from Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was a 19th century African-American intellectual, social reformer, abolitionist, orator, and statesman. He escaped slavery and became a leader of the abolitionist movement and and an advisor to national policymakers on a wide range of world issues. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation, are people who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a mortal one, may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both. But it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Let us join together in an attitude of prayer and meditation, where we speak or listen to God as we understand God, or where we listen to our inner wisdom that is always speaking to us, or we might want to just watch our breath as it goes in and out of our bodies. In this quiet space, our spirits might find healing. We might find ourselves held in the arms of love. In this congregation, as always, tiny noises from babies and the sounds of life count as part of the silence.
at the beginning of this series on elements of baking, I told y'all that I had been reading a book called Glass Paper Beans, and it was written by a woman who was in a coffee shop drinking a glass of coffee and reading the paper. And she thought to herself, I wonder where this coffee came from, and I wonder how it got here, and I wonder how this glass is made, and I wonder where this paper comes from exactly, and how do they harvest the trees, and what do they... Anyway, she wrote a whole book about it, and I loved that book, and I thought, um, as I was trying to think of fun and interesting uh, things to talk to you all about, interesting for you, but, but also interesting for me. <laughs> Because if it's not interesting for me, it's, what's the point? Um, Anyway, um, so I thought, well, I'm really interested in baking right now. Maybe I'll take the elements of baking and look at those and use them as um, metaphors. So we started with heat and transformation. And then a couple weeks ago, we had salt. And I talked about how salt really uh, enabled people to travel for other reasons than finding more food. They could salt their food and preserve it, and so you could travel for other reasons. You could go see family, or you could go visit another civilization. You could go sell your pottery or your jewelry or your salted food stuff. And it really made civilizations start connecting with each other. And a lot of roads were built that were made to transport salt from one place to another. So today is butter, and I want to talk about creativity within constraints. I'm going to tell you a little short thing about butter, but then we're going to talk about creativity. So when you you have butter in your hand, you're holding something that has a more than 3,000-year history. The archaeologists in Ireland, one of the most common things they come up with is uh, containers of bog butter. And those are butter uh, containers that were sunk into the bog in order to preserve them. And I don't think they eat the butter they find. I wouldn't. But archaeologists are a hardy lot. (laughs) It was central to the Irish economy, to the Norwegian economy. All northern Europe was... They were known derogatorily by the Mediterranean folks as butter eaters because the Mediterranean folks were olive oil eaters, but they couldn't grow olives up there, so they had butter. In Rome, butter was used as a medicine. You would swallow it for sore throat or you would um, rub it into sore joints. So it was kind of medicinal. Um, In the Hindu culture, they used clarified butter called ghee, you can bathe your, the statues of the divinities in it, or you have a fire in front of the divinity statue, and you put the ghee on the fire, keep the fire going while you're saying prayers. It's a way of honoring the gods. In the Bible, um, butter was a celebration food. If you had angels come to visit you, for example, you would feed them butter and milk and meat. Uh, butter is made by agitating milk. The butter journal, yes, there's a butter journal. <laughs> the butter journal hypothesizes that a hunter made butter for the first time just by having a goat's milk bag of milk on his saddle in order to drink it during the day. And by the end of the day of galloping around, um, it was butter. 
And so that enabled people to travel also, because instead of milk, which went sour pretty easily, you could have butter that would last a lot longer, and you still had the calories available to you, and you could go longer distances. And um, so butter enabled travel too. But I began to think about agitation. And putting the milk in a small container and then shaking it up, and I thought, man, that's a metaphor. Uh, I know that civilizations, cultures don't change without agitation. We read the history of social justice, and we know that agitation is at the heart of much of the change of social justice. I mean, Frederick Douglass said it, those who are afraid of agitation are like those people who want want thunder without lightning, and those people who want ocean without waves, and power yields... Nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. I think we're the same way. That when we get agitated, shaken up in our lives, we become changed in a, in a good way that makes us more nourishing, more sturdy, more long-lasting. I look out at your faces and I... And I know many of you, and I know just the surface of many of you, just how many challenges that you have faced. How many times you've been shaken up, how many times you've been thrown off a horse by uh, losing a job or changing or having a terrible boss or being downsized or having a, a parent or a partner start degenerating in their mind or being related to an addict or... Any number of ways that you can, your life can be agitated. And sometimes we, we do it to ourselves because we feel like, I'm getting too comfortable. I'm getting too, I'm falling asleep here. I'm bored. I need some agitation in my life. And so we take ourselves off on a, a journey. We take ourselves off on a quest or we just go traveling because when you're traveling, all of the normal comforts that you do to comfort yourself at home are gone. And you're staying with different people and you have a different routine and you're eating different food. And, you know, especially if you're traveling within constraints, if you're traveling on a shoestring, then you end up, you know, uh, spending the night on the floor at the, at the ferry station in Wales. Or you end up... Um, well, this happened to my mother and me and my sister when we were traveling. I was about 16. You end up sharing a, a train compartment with, with a whole family of, of German contortionists. <laughs> it, it was wonderful, and if we'd had more money, it never would have happened. So we wake ourselves up in so many ways, but life normally agitates us just by itself. I mean, I got agitated in a way that changed my whole life, not quickly, but slowly. Um, In seminary, uh, we were learning Orthodox Christian theology, but um, we were among the first women to come through seminary. And so we were reading feminist theology kind of on our own. There was no class at that point. I'm not sure there still isn't. A class, but anyway, um, feminist theology suggests that God might be a mother as well as a father, or instead of being a father, I was raised in a traditional Protestant household, and I went to to college, and I fell in amongst the Christians, um, and 
all the prayers were like Father God this and Father God that, and God was the loving dad. And um, so in feminist theology, I found that calling God mother started to change everything because you could not in the in any realm imagine a mother deciding that she would set things up so that she would have to torture and kill her child in order to s- satisfy the way she had set things up for justice. No, a mother would never do that. And so that started messing all of us up. And then we explored neo-paganism and we talked about the goddess and we talked about um, mother nature and Gaia as a living, the earth as a living divinity. And that was lovely and wonderful And I heard people talk about, oh, I know about the goddess because she's so wonderful because of dolphins and sunsets. And and I started thinking, yeah, but nature, I mean, you've also got, you know, like parasites and um, viruses and really ugly things that happen in nature. And can you really take the beauty part of nature and leave the ugly part of nature out? I don't think so. It doesn't make sense. And I had prayed. My mother got cancer when I was in seminary. Um, and we prayed hard for her. She prayed hard for her healing to Father God. And I prayed to Father God, and then I prayed to Mother Goddess, and then I prayed to Mother Nature. And, you know, it was all equally ineffective in that case. But, you know, you just start thinking about death and Mother Nature. And we would camp out in the mountains near Asheville and there's just acres and acres of of woods in the Appalachian Mountains and and there's a beautiful moon in the sky and the beautiful woods and and you can feel the wind cutting through your tent and then the bear comes and eats your food that you hung in the tree and you think really I could die out here and the moon would still be beautiful And the trees would still wave quietly, and they might not be indifferent to my death. They might just have a different idea about death than I do. It might just be not that big a deal to them. But I would like my death to be a big deal. And so Mother Nature just never seemed that kind. But all that agitation ended up in me becoming Unitarian Universalist. I'm very happy about that. And it ended up with me having a theology that's creamy and buttery and one that I can live with, which is that, to me, the divine is, and I've told you this before, is a river of love running through the universe. And every loving thing that any human or animal or plant does, and the plants do loving things, you learn that the pecan groves uh, all fruit together. And if part of it is in shade and part of it is in sun... The ones in the sun save up their sugars and send them through the networks of fungi underneath until the shade ones have enough sugar so that then they can all fruit together. So every act of love in the universe, in my opinion, which has nothing to do with what you have to think, um, adds to the river of love. And you can invite the river of love into your life and you can take a bath in it if you need forgiveness or grace, and you can stick your toes in it if that's 
all you want to do, and you help it grow. And I love that idea. And so that's what's happened because of the agitation in my theology. And I've I met some people, not so much anymore, but I've met some people who really have had nothing bad happen in their lives at all. And they're almost like raw people. They've never lost anyone they love. They've never gotten really ill. They've never, they've never had anything terrible happen in their lives. And they're not as nourishing people normally. Always exceptions, of course. But there's something very comforting about a person who has survived a lot of bad stuff. Who's been shaken up. And not just shaken up, but you're shaken up within constraints is the whole thing about butter. You have to be in a, in a constrained area and be shaken up at the same time. And when I, I read so many business journals this week, which I never do, but when you Google creativity within constraints, almost all the articles are in business journals, fast company and all kinds of other, that's the only one I remember at this point, but they all talk about how um, counterintuitively, creativity is magnified by limitations. And that most of the limitations that you have in a business are budgetary or time constraints, you're on a deadline, or geographical or personnel, you don't have the right um, things to do everything the perfect way, or suddenly an emergency happens and you have to uh, someone after the last service said, yeah, the best teaching I ever did was in an emergency situation. I had to put a class together in two days, and it was the best class I ever put together. Just because something about constraints lights creativity on fire. And some of you know that I like watching creative process shows. And so there's a new one called Next in Fashion that a lot of us are watching. And um, the fashion designers have to make something. But they don't just say, just make anything you want. They say, no, you have to make something that is based on a military style, and you have to use only denim. Or they have some other kind of constraints. And you see people in emergency situations, like, this is very much like writing a sermon. Preachers on Friday (laughs) are on Facebook going, why did I say I would talk about this thing? I don't know anything about this thing. And on Saturday, they're like, I got nothing. I got nothing. Or they said, I've got 1,500 pages. I can't, I've got to cut it. Anyway, so there's this whole squeeze of emergency. Um, You run out of fabric for the pants because you used too much on the top. And you got to do something different right away. And then someone who's mentoring you comes in and says, just make it work. This is a make it work moment. Or you have, you have low resources, and then you do, but you do well with them. Like, by accident, yesterday we were watching the Green Bay Packers. And they were, it's a football team. <laughs> so we're in a sports bar, and Kaya says, my wife says, I love the Green Bay Packers. They're my favorite. And I said, really, why? She said, well, they're owned by the town. And I said, the town of... Green Bay? <laughs> yes, she said, yes. In Wisconsin. I said, oh, um, I could never be president because my geography. 
So they're owned by the town, so they don't have as much money as a team that's owned by a very rich oligarch. And so they have to make do, and they're doing pretty well. And a side effect is that they inspire tremendous loyalty and passion, and people put big wedges of cheese on their heads when they go to the game, and they love that team. And Kai's from Kentucky, and she loves that team just because they're fighting hard with not as many resources. It's a kind of a side effect that happens there. So some creative people will actually uh, give themselves limitations in order to spur their creativity. Uh, those of you who are artists and writers and dancers, you know this. You just tell yourself something. Like there's a famous um, assignment saying, tell a story in six words. Well, I found one in the newspaper a long time ago in South Carolina, and it said, wedding dress for sale, never worn. That's a story right there. So you might want to try doing your, doing your autobiography in six words, see what comes up for you. Another way of giving yourself a constraints, if you have a job that you just don't want to face, um, just set a timer for 20 minutes and say, I'm going to do this for 20 minutes, and then when the timer goes off, I'm going to rest. Um, I have a timer on my desk, say, I'm going to clean my desk for 20 minutes, and usually I think it's going to take an hour, but after 20 minutes, it's pretty clean, clean enough for me. Don't look in there. Most of you know that I'm a writer and I write stories about my life. But even when I know what story I want to write, I face the blank page and it's intimidating. You know, you just, what are you going to write? And um, sometimes you sit down with the idea that you're going to write about a character. Or some people are writing fiction. And there are lots of prompts, what they call writer's prompts, online. Just Google writer's prompts. And there's one that's a character prompt, and you sort of spin a wheel and get qualities of the character that you might want to write about. So you spin the wheel, and then it says, he wears his father's fedora. And you think, ooh, okay. And then you spin the wheel again, and it says, he has one arm. And you go, all right, now we've got a story. We've got stuff happening. I, I, I can get to know this guy. You put limitations on yourself. So almost all of us need constraints of some kind. You know, children need constraints. Otherwise, they grow up to be hooligans. And sometimes even when they do have constraints, they grow up to be hooligans. You just can't help it. That's what happens. Sorry. Um, But they need constraints. And what I learned uh, from my favorite child-raising book that I told you about last Sunday called How to Be Your Dog's Best Friend... Um, is that your dog needs constraints and that if you don't have any rules, it's the same as abandonment. I read that one over and over again. Lack of constraints equals abandonment. They're looking for constraints, especially if they're German shepherds or if they used to be a German shepherd in a former life. And... If nobody else is the boss, they're going to be the boss. And no four-year-old wants to have to run their whole family. Know what I mean? You know that. You know that already. There used to be this really terrible commercial for some kind of stock market thing, and it showed a bull 
out in a field with no fences. And the song said, to know no boundaries. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've known some bulls. One of them was a Senator Gertrudis bull and from Texas, but he was living in North Carolina, which was too small a state for that bull. And if you have a bull out in a field with no fences, that's a dangerous situation. So I think everybody needs some boundaries. And relationships need boundaries, too. I mean, if you want to set boundaries with some relationships that you have, you know, you say, Mom, I'm not going to let you be around my children if you're drunk. Or, Dad, I'm not going to let you speak to me that way. Or, partner in life, I am not going to listen to you talk about that anymore. Or, whatever is important in your life to set boundaries about. Because boundaries help uh, help contain our lives. And so artificial, excuse me, artificial shakeups. This is the song of my people at this time of year. <coughs> artificial shakeups are going to happen in your life. And constraints are going to happen in your life. And my suggestion from this from thinking about this metaphor is maybe we can just think while the agitation and constraints are happening, we're making the butter. We're making the butter. And try to see if you don't get more useful and creamy in the life you've chosen. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment, these we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to the words of Holly Near. I am open and I am willing for to be hopeless would seem so strange it dishonors those who go before us, so lift us up to the light of change. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.